I love theater, like traditional theater. You get the friend who's like, I love this. People are singing and dancing and there's everything's cool. And you got the person who's like, this is the worst. 60% of our audience have never, ever, ever, ever been part of an immersive experience. Even now, like critics don't really know how to review this stuff. Gina recently was One, possessed two, by three, Poe. Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Nine different rooms. Okay. Oof. Let's throw out that linear. In 1969, a group of young people, because only young people would be so foolish as to play around in the paranormal seance to summon the spirit of their beloved author, which is obviously a terrible this idea. This piece, once it gets going, it is relentless. Everyone is on the same plane of energy. It's relentless. So it just follows you. Please use the door. Unconsciously, those myths live in the DNA of humans because they're what every story is based on. Hi, I'm Nathaniel Skye, the host of the Immersion Nation podcast. Here, the masters of immersive experience create and conjure, muse, and imagine the cultural revolution that is unfolding before us. That is immersive entertainment. Welcome. 170 years ago, on the date of this recording, Edgar Allan Poe died. It is disputed exactly how Poe died and why, but there is a theory. Now, if you were to find yourself in Manhattan 50 years ago, you might also find a group of young adults gathered in a basement with Poe's words eager on their lips and a singular determination to uncover the story behind the poet's death. Would you join them? Today, Aaron Salazar of the Poseidon Theater Company has made it possible for one to ask themselves this question. He joins the Immersion Nation podcast to discuss this immersive experience. Who killed Edgar Allan Poe? The Cooping Theory, 1969. Enjoy. Aaron, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Ah, thank you so much for taking the time to come on today. Uh, yeah, no, it's, uh, I'm, I was, I'm really excited to be able to like, uh, chit chat and, uh, I'm excited about this podcast, man. Congratulations. Yeah. I'm, I am particularly excited for this conversation in the context of spooky season, in the context of one, 178, correct? 178th anniversary? hundred, uh, 170th. 170. Yeah. It's, it's pretty intense. It's a perfect day to do this. Yes. And Though it will not be released on that date, for those listening, we are recording neatly on the 170th anniversary of Edgar Allan Poe's death, which is incredibly fitting. Um, yes. So to start out with, uh, the, the, the fictional world, if you had to choose a favorite fictional world that you would want to live in, adventure in, spend some time in, what have you, what comes to mind? A fictional world I'd want to live in and spend some time in... Um, you know, for me, it, it actually falls somewhere. I I have a hard time like placing it in terms of um, like genre, but I definitely think that I I like any fictional world where technology stops at a certain point. If that makes any sense. Oh yeah, most definitely. Uh, there's there's something about there's something about a lack of technology uh, that creates a lot more mystery and a lot more exploration. Um, 
And um, there, I don't know if I would consider this a fictional world, but there's something always about being in some kind of like atmosphere where there is a large estate and you're surrounded by country, um, the countryside, that is a fictional world that actually, if I could actually sort of live inside of that, running around, figuring things out, um, that would be the premise to uh, the life I'd wake up in every day, <laughs> uh, which is ironic because I'm a, I'm a city city kid. But um, yeah, is that is that a valid answer? I oh, think? most definitely. That is a that is yeah. a phenomenal canvas that we'll be able to um, come back to and uh, brainstorm, spitball ideas, what have you, uh, in a moment here when we come to the Make It Immersive segment. But until then, um, why don't we just start by uh, talking about the experience. What is Who Killed Edgar Allan Poe, The Cooping Theory, 1969? Uh, yeah, okay, so the the show... Uh, got birthed out of just the idea for something for Halloween a couple years ago. We did it in Brooklyn initially in Williamsburg. Um, and uh, Poseidon Theater Company, the company that I helm, uh, we explore classic texts and then develop uh, works out of them. And um, everything we do actually has original uh, cinematic soundtracks. The music is used exactly the same way it's used in a movie. It is a character and it's like the element that never uh, calls out and it's always there. So when I was thinking of something to do uh, with this piece, uh, Poe came to mind as classic literature. And so that's where this got devised. And I, I, I figured what could be cooler than that than not to be so on the nose. So how would you talk to a dead um, genius through a seance? And uh, that's where this is. So basically the, the, the premise is the Poe Society uh, of 1969, a group of young people, because only young people would be so foolish as to play around in the paranormal. <laughs> right, right. Uh, get together. Uh, they're all a bunch of, uh, you know, ultimately they're they're literature geeks who get together. And there's actually a very, there's a very strong element of like a sort of a, a modern, well, not modern, but there's like a very Scooby-Doo element to like their aesthetic. Um, yeah, I so was picking up are, on some of that. Yeah, it's very Scooby-Doo in the best way possible. You know, that whimsy has to be there. So the premise is you get invited as a guest to the Post Society of 1969 Manhattan Chapters uh, cocktail party where they're trying to induct new members on the anniversary of Post's death and have a party. That's that's what you think is happening. So you show up, uh, you're inducted into the party um, after you have a little moment at the door that I won't give away if anyone wants to come. And... Uh, you meet them and then you go and you hang tough. I mean, and that's a, that's the first part of the immersion of this is that you are literally one-on-one having a full-out cocktail party with these Poe Society members. There's four core members and there's two pledges, the Carlisles, who are, there's a lot going on there. And you're hanging out in the space and you're living your best life and you're drinking cocktails and you're talking, 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 talking. And then the meeting begins. And uh, you find out that they've actually uh, invited a special guest who is a medium, Madam Harlow, to join them to see if they can um, have a seance to summon the spirit of their beloved author, uh, which is obviously a terrible idea. Um, This is all happening underground, by the way. Uh, So (laughs) Madam Harlow arrives kind of on her own schedule and um, she proceeds to have the seance. And as is the case, the seance goes uh, wrong. And Poe's spirit enters into 
the uh, soiree, but not in the way anyone anticipated. And it immediately gets a little too out of hand. So then as the audience, uh, you have to be ushered out of there uh, to safety. And that is where the show actually kind of explodes and you begin to expand into this 10 room experience uh, with an unbelievable design in this space that we're in an RPM underground in uh, Manhattan uh, in uh, Times Square. And um, Poe's spirit continues to take over and possess the society members, all at different varying degrees. Initially, it starts off very much in a, like a almost like a romantic paranormal way where it's a little more ethereal, even though it is uh, terrifying on a certain level. Uh, and then, as is the case, one of the members who really fights it and tries to rebel, the way Poe's spirit interacts with him is really not good. And there is a violent possession that enters into the experience. Um, not violent towards the guest, just violent to the, to the society member. And that kicks off a whole different energy that he becomes a conduit for with Poe's spirit. And it really makes a sharp left from there. Then as a, the Cracker Jack box basically gets spilled all over the place, these doors open and you are thrown into a choose your own adventure as the society members fall deeper and deeper and deeper into a paranormal blackout. That's just diving deeper into the psyche of Poe's mind, especially his mind while he was alcohol poisoned. If this really happened, the cooping and it fragments into all these multiple rooms that you have to enter at your own free will and doors slam and you're stuck inside there with people and things continue to progress and progress and build and build and build. And then uh, it builds to its climax, which as is the case with most things doing uh, dealing with Poe and the paranormal, it doesn't end well. And uh, why that ending happens is really up to the guest's perception of how they chose to experience the, the piece like who you chose to follow, what you chose to listen to, what room you decided to go inside of. And so the more you keep investing of yourself in this haunted swamp of a just paranormal uh, total blackout is what I refer to it as, it is really what makes you find out like what is happening. Because we can't answer who killed Edgar Allan Poe. And with the cooping theory being a real thing, we don't know if it really happened. So much like Poe's life and his death, it is a big mystery. And for those, in a, sorry, yeah. go ahead. No, please, please. For those um, listening who are not familiar with the cooping theory, uh, could you briefly explain what that line of thinking is or that, that line of speculation around the death of Edgar Allan Poe? Oh, yeah. It's something no one ever talks about. So the cooping theory was a form of electoral fraud uh, that took place um, in the late 1800s uh, for quite some time. Uh, both parties... Uh, completely participated in this practice so much so that it was just normal, like much in the same way. They're like, okay, we've got a marketing budget here and we've got a budget for these other people. And we got a budget for these people. And then we got the budget for the cooping gangs. It was just normal, like totally normal. Um, and what would happen is uh, parties would hire cooping gangs uh, because the polling stations were in public houses and, you know, obviously you can get beer and then vote for a candidate. What could be better? And, um, so uh, what they would do is they would get marks, find these people, uh, continue to bait them with booze, and then take them away to cooping cells, which is where the cooping idea, the cooping um, 
metaphor came up because they would coop you up and then they would continue to basically keep you just a hair above a blackout or actually just in a, a functional blackout, if that means if that's even a thing. And they would change your clothing and put you in disguises and take you to polling stations to vote over and over and over again for their candidate. Now, this happened. This happened so much that it's actually been removed as an official word from the Webster Dictionary because uh, because it completely um, shows guilt to both parties. So it wasn't like, you know, one party could be like those guys used to even do cooping or those guys. Everyone did it. So naturally, the public relations of that situation, it's just been removed. You can look it up historically. But if you were to type it into any program, it comes with a red line, which I also find kind of intense. Yeah. Um, and so <clears throat> it is thought that Poe was a victim of said cooping. He was uh, went out for a drink, probably to celebrate um, in Baltimore on election night and uh, was at a pub at a polling station. And this is uh, where the mystery begins because the last place he was ever seen was at one of these polling stations. Then he sort of disappeared. And a couple days later um, showed up in a ditch completely in a different outfit than he was wearing that night. And like in clothes that weren't even his like ill fitted clothing. And he very much had like an aesthetic that we've all seen in, in pictures that really came out of poverty, but you know, he ran with it. And um, on his deathbed, he just kept saying Reynolds, 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 Reynolds. And uh, my thought is that that must have been the guy he knew, because most terrible things that happen to people happen from people, you know, uh, who, you know, took this poor guy as a mark. And he was a victim of this cooping. And the thing was, is if you didn't really agree with them or like things weren't going well, they, they left you for dead. And they probably figured, oh, they'll sober up and they won't remember anything. But in this instance, it completely... Uh, all call poisoned and took away this man's life. And um, that, that actually is what really punched me in the gut and made me want to make a piece about it. Albeit it's expanded and we can't really answer any questions, but I was dumbfounded by this, by this theory that no one talks about. Yeah. Yeah. And I really like the fact that it comes, it creates an initial context and an implicit setting for the piece that comes from a broader sociological standpoint rather than a very finite like hero myth based standpoint because we all love our hero myths but at the same time the way that stories often unfold have to do with you know the powers that be that operate at an order of magnitude larger than any one person and 100% yes the fact that that becomes the backdrop to the story I think just immediately speaks to a very, very interesting context for a show. Well, I appreciate you saying that because I actually agree, you know, like, you know, when we make these immersive experiences often, obviously the audience is the most important part of it. And I think that all of us in a weird way are trying to be like, this is fun. And it is fun in the sense that, you know, you're playing make-believe, which is my favorite part of like this, this whole world. But at the same time too, I think that the diving into sort of the psychology of the tragedy of what happened there really, like you said, was something that was such a great uh, circus tent to build this, this show under because it sort of like left us open to keep diving deeper. And what happens in the show is 
Poe's spirit actually attaches to everyone and it brings out all the grief in their life and the things that have happened to them that have been traumatic that actually tethered them to this man that made them want to form a society. And so it becomes this complete duality of Poe's memories coming out and then the memories of the society members um, also being played out. And it it makes for a very intense and interesting uh, paranormal experience because it's more psychological than it is like a, a parlor trick or like jump scare uh, uh, based show. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Um, a very different kind of spooky season experience, um, which actually this is a really unique and different way to do a spooky season experience. Um, I think a lot of people like to try and digress from the standard jump scare or haunted house format. But I was curious, like, what are you hoping guests take away from this experience um, as opposed to what they might come away with uh, from like a more familiar haunted house format? Well, I mean, the the idea behind this guy uh, was we wanted it to live. It could, we wanted it to be able to live in in the Halloween season. Obviously, it's perfect for that. But then also out of it, uh, because, I mean, we opened by the time we close, we will we'll have been open for 11 weeks. We opened in August. So. Um, what I, what people seem to be walking away with it is there's two things. You can either completely lean into the fact and, uh, that it is very much like being inside of a 1969, like Argento, uh, or Kubrick horror movie. It's very Kubrick and it's aesthetic. Yeah, yeah. And we leaned very heavily into that. Like I leaned hard and I had to almost tell the, thematic theater part of myself to just like shut up because there were things that there's aspects of those movies that are full of so many fragmented non-linear um images that actually make up the sum of the aesthetic and the mood that i wanted to not fight it and so there are the people who are leaning into that and just loving the mood and the atmosphere of it but then what's been interesting is we get profiles and actually paranormal geeks um, like me who are kind of walking away with something a little more complex. Uh, and that's not even to say, oh, this is like the blah, blah, blah. But they they have a lot of thoughts afterwards. And it's been interesting because some of them will talk to me. I'm, I'm there onboarding. They don't know who I am, which is nice. Um, yeah, yeah, always helpful. And uh, yeah, and I'm in costume, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but um they'll talk to me about it because they identify me as someone who's like accessible afterwards. And, um, they kind of come away with, they have so many thoughts. And so that's kind of what's been cool is that it, it seems that the audiences that really invest have so many theories about what happened. And then they also really care about the post society members because for almost an hour, you are hanging out with these kids. I refer to them as kids. Um, as just human beings. I mean, you're looking in their eyes and you're just talking. And the coolest, the biggest compliment we had is that so many people were like, I couldn't even tell if they were acting. And I was like, that's amazing. Yeah. So by the time they make that sharp left and their, their lives continue to completely unfold and they're totally possessed and losing all aspects of themselves, you start to care. So, um, uh, my long tangent to a point is, is you can get two things. You can either be like, that was cool. Or it actually brings up more thoughts um, on like what's happening there. It also makes you look at Poe in a different way. And um, 
it's like a twofold experience. You can either like lean into the coolness uh, of just the whole aesthetic because the space is insane and the aesthetic is, is very heightened, or you walk away with something that actually made you think. Uh, and that's been a very um, satisfying thing to have feedback about. Yeah, most definitely. And on that note, are there any particular stories or unexpected reactions from guests uh, in the course of running through um, the shows you know what's interesting? So far? <laughs> you know, I I know that it's well. What's been interesting is because we're in in the Times Square area. I mean, completely. We're on Fifty Fourth Street, West Fifty Fourth, and you go to the corner, like that's the view, um, right off Broadway, literally. And um, it's been interesting because we have so many first timers. I feel like in our field, we're so used to people who understand, like, okay, here's how the dice fall, and now here's what you do. Yeah. And we have so, I would say 60% of our audience, because we're in a tourist area, have never, ever, ever, ever been part of an immersive experience. Oh, interesting. And so it has been fascinating to watch the people who just have no idea what to do until about the last 20 minutes of the show. And they almost are like seized in terror because the way it's set up, the, the sound design is unbelievable. Sung Oh, who did the sound design of the physical uh, space, tethered these 32 bow speakers. So it just follows you everywhere and it's relentless. Um, my two composers, uh, uh, CJ Paleo and uh, Giancarlo Bonfanti, uh, made an uh, epic, epic score for this. And so I think that it's been interesting watching them get overwhelmed and then watching them submit. And that has actually been the most fascinating thing because then what happens is we get the immersive people who run around, like I say, like eight year olds trick or treating where you're like, do, 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 here. you know, cause that's what I turn into. I'm like fully an eight year old, just like trick or treating wherever I go when I do immersive stuff and like looking around and like, okay, what, what can I go in here? Can I go in here? And so they sort of inform people, but then we have, you know, people who are like, oh, let's try something different. And it's, it's fascinating to watch them navigate, you know, and then it's fascinating to watch people who will not make a choice. Like they refuse. Right. So uh, it's not even as a negative, but I'm like, you know, you, you can, you, you know, so, so oftentimes too, in the experience, the two of us who are on deck sometimes shepherd a lot harder than other nights. That's what's also been interesting too, is that on a nightly basis, the activity level of like shepherding is sometimes at 90 and sometimes at zero. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just based on how familiar a given set of guests are with the format of an experience like that, because if you're walking in there without previous knowledge, it can definitely be a very, very unexpected thing. Um, and a lot of adjustment in that, which is, you know, a unique and lovely experience, uh, but at the same time does change the way that you have to, you know, personalize the experience to them. Oh, yeah. And the thing is, is that we have a capacity of 60, which, as you know, for an immersive experience is huge. Yeah. Yeah. So on nights when it's like 40 plus, it is a completely different show um, in terms of not so much what's happening with the actual, uh, show show, but in terms of the audience, they turn into schools of fish and then they actually start to pick up on each other's cues. And then, you know, if there's 40 people and like 15 of them are being very, um, uh, explorative, 
then people take that cue and they realize, oh, I, sh- I need to go in there. So, uh, you know, it, it's been interesting. Yeah, without a doubt. Um, I think potentially this might be a good chance to shift gears briefly um, and move into the Make It Immersive segment, if you are willing. Yeah, of course, please. Wonderful. So we have this phenomenal um, canvas to work with being a large estate surrounded by a countryside with limited tech. How limited are we talking here? Um, uh, I, I like uh, I, I like it. Well, like, actually funny with the 1969 thing I'm doing now. I, I like um, anything kind of. I actually prefer things before the seventies because there was also a very limited amount of uh, telecommunications happening. And yeah, yeah. Uh, even the stuff that was happening then was kind of um, really archaic comparatively. Uh, I actually prefer it if it's gotten very um, uh, vinyl and sort of like the white noise of radios and candles. <laughs> if I, if I have my say, like that's my favorite kind of low tech uh, situation. Yeah, most definitely. And I feel like there's something in that that cues guests to be like, oh, hey, this is an experience to like immerse yourself in. It's something where you can very happily set aside the rest of the outside world, not feel like you want to like pull out a phone or something of that nature. It's like, no, in order to be of this place and in this place, you have to accept that limit. Yes. So what would you want to do if, if someone just handed you a large estate to put an immersive show in? What what comes to mind so far as the kind of kind of world you would want to create? You know, it's funny you should say that. I actually you know what I would love to do in that kind of experience? I'd love to do a uh, immersive version of the turn of the screw. Um, OK, because, you know, do you know Are you familiar with the turn of the screw? Um, um, no, so- actually. So the turn of the screw is a classic uh, ghost story that actually takes place in an estate. And I am being a fool right now that I'm forgetting this famous author. I'll look it up. Uh, And it basically takes place in a large estate that is really only populated by uh, the help, uh, for lack of better words, like the head of the estate. And then some of the the, uh, people who work there. Um, But then really what happens is, is that this nanny is um, hired by the head of the estate to take care of his two, his niece and nephew, uh, who he doesn't actually take any care of and doesn't want to know anything about. He doesn't even live there. Um, And what ends up happening is Henry James. My God, there it is. Henry James. Okay. Yeah. Henry James James turned the screw. So what ends up happening, these two kids keep thinking they see a ghost, Right. And it turns out there actually is like a, a dude that that is the spirit. And then I don't want to give it away because people should read this book. And then it actually turns into a deeper and deeper and deeper ghost story. And more or less what happens is it devolves and almost becomes a two-hander because really the main interactions are happening between this woman who is the governess and then the woman or man, I guess it doesn't really matter, um, who is the head of the household. And then realizing, like, is anyone even here? And I always thought it would be so interesting because I'm a classic text guy to do that in an estate where the participatory aspect of it 
is that you get assigned to be the ghost of these either people or the kids or the person. And what could be interesting is having the white noise of communication actually come out of old radios and vinyl clues and uh, have it all just be in candlelight, but also having it surround the estate because there are definitely scenes that happen where things happen outside. So I've always thought that that would be a very cool way of tethering uh, classic literature and immersive theater, which is something that I'm actually working on for my next project is trying to find this bridge between these classic texts that are so dope. Like it's what we base all the stories on, right? It's like totally our, uh, you know, it's like the hero's journey. We still base everything in that. And marrying that between this world and the classic literature world and kind of getting the more traditional theater people to be like, hey, you can come and play over here too. It isn't weird because it's not in a proscenium. Um, right, right. Like here's a story that you know, and it's been something I've been talking a lot about lately with some people that, about how does one marry the two. Um, so for me, that would actually be the perfect way to stage that is in an estate, candlelit, maybe some you know low Edison bulbs, um, everything that's happening around it, and that the clues come out of actually like yeah the radio because you know there's a thing with the paranormal communicating through white noise. We all know about that. And I thought it could be cool to follow like the white noise and this governess's journey that falls deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into almost in a lot of ways, like kind of what they base the others on. Um, yeah. With Nicole Kidman. Mm-hmm. And um, really that feeling of being alone. And like, here's the thing, let's be real commerce wise. It's a useless project, but it'd be really cool if it could only be like, you know, 10 people at a time. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 You know, but, so you, that way you're very much like these, this group of people who are engulfed by the space. And then that there's something about the seeing a human being kind of being eaten alive by their surroundings and almost having what's going on in their brain be a psychological terror. But then you layer that with a legitimate ghost experience. It's a whole other layer of fear and naturally, too, the whole thing would be surrounded in an original score that sounded like it was from the time period that would follow you. Yeah, yeah. And the idea of having a series of radios set up, you can almost personify um, the experience or the characters that come out through the radio. Um, exactly, exactly. Like the voices of like, the. I mean, there's nothing more terrifying than the voices of children, right? I mean, it's horror terrifying. Um, <laughs> I mean, but you know what I mean? Like that voice of like vintage sounding kids laughing and playing. Or right, like, right, yeah. You know, and also too, it all takes place and they all have accents and it's very heightened. Um, so it, it speaks to, it speaks to that world, which isn't to say I only like paranormal stuff, but I mean, it's fun, you know? <laughs> yeah, most definitely. Most definitely. And I'm like imagining like because of the flexibility that using that um, audio dynamic would lend to an experience like there's so much you could do with that insofar as personalization. Again, like it would be amazing if it could be like a 10 person thing. But like, oh, my gosh, if it was like. I could yeah, I mean, can you, can you imagine like just walking into a room and then all of a sudden, I mean, this is where you get a brilliant tech person and the, the knob on a radio goes click and it, and you're like, oh my God, like after you've established that you're the one that turns the channel, it could be interesting if all the radios suddenly turn on you. 
You know what I mean? And yeah, they start yeah. to move on their of their own volition. And you have to chase this map of clues and like, you know, record players that just drop on their own and like Vitrola's playing terrifying music. I mean, it could really be an interesting um engulfing experience that uh i should probably put some intellectual property on uh (laughs) (laughs) yeah but that that, to me that would be like an amazing thing to do that that really you know could be uh, a cool way to like i said to marry like a classic story and this world yeah yeah and then you have like the dynamic of finding like say if you're going around and you find a record then that experience can then just take ten thousand different turns based on what you happen to find where the context in which you play it, the time at which you play it. Um, and that oh, would yeah. just add a whole different kind of interaction just with the set itself. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. And I should also say, like, I actually, um, I'll, I'll say this on the record. I hate props, but I love props when there's a brilliant props master. And so that's where, you know, I'm actually looking into that for my next piece is how do I incorporate props? Because I actually tend to not like, like for this piece, the design is so insane of the space that we also I'm very cognizant of not ever having props that are conduits of energy because there's already so many antiques in that space in terms of paranormal things. Uh, I mean, I'm a Latin kid. Like I grew up, I've had four paranormal experiences in my lifetime that really happened. And, uh, I mean, they happened and yeah, I yeah. didn't want to bring like Ouija boards or any conduit of energy. Nope. Cause I mean, nope. let's be real. We are underground in Manhattan, like you can't play with that. Like there's actually a smudging that happens in the show and it's there one for effect and scent and smell and, and, and like a, a, a multi-sensory moment, but also in a weird way, it kind of was me being like, let's well, just smudge the room before we even play. Right, right. It's like just, due diligence. Just, just, just in case you never know, you never know. But um, we were very cognizant too of like, I'm very cognizant of that to make sure that when you play pretend with those things, that there are little steps that actually, if you're doing a real seance, you have to connect certain threads. And while the audience would never know this until I say it, there's like two steps we don't connect that actually don't really even matter in terms of like the theatricality of it. Because we we were very clear that we're like, we don't actually want to summon anything because that's like, once again, that's a terrible idea. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I grow nervous when I walk into spaces and I'm like, you shouldn't have it on the floor. Oh my God. Like, you know, I'm like, okay, okay. Like, but, um, yeah. So I think in that sense, what's cool about these kind of ghost stories that it could be fun. Like I said, is using other elements that have the ghost element that, that are clues, um, that ultimately are the most terrifying thing because they're based in what you're hearing are the sound of humans, you know? Um, there's nothing more terrifying than, than the, you know, the human experience is, is intense enough. And I think that that's why we're so fascinated with this paranormal ghost thing, because ultimately what is it that we're confronting? We're confronting the energy of another human. Um, yeah. Something I've only actually vocalized in this moment, but yeah. 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 That's a very good point. I mean, there is, there's an automatic fascination with other people, um, because humans in, in their normal everyday form, the, you know, living and walking around variety um, yeah. are confusing enough as it is. So then you add another element to that. And it's just how could that be anything but deeply intriguing? Exactly. So to actually wrap back around to uh, the piece at hand, um, you mentioned that you really like to work with classical stories. Um, I was uh, 
watching a video on the Poseidon's uh, YouTube channel, and you were talking about wanting to use um, the classical Greek drama in a lot of contexts. And I know it wasn't necessarily in relation to this show, but outside of the um, the Poe and the literature element in uh, Cooping Theory, what like are there any what what do you do to draw that out? Is are are you still playing with that? kind of impetus or is it more of a digression? Well, actually, you know, the, the thing that started um, the company was when I realized I wanted to explore classic texts, which is, you know, uh, m- much like my, my post society kids, a terrible idea in terms of like a career, but what, <laughs> but uh, I actually, I'm kidding, but, but um, I, I hadn't real. I mean, like, cause you know, who casually is like, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to read some Euripides. That sounds real fun. And, uh, I, I hadn't right. Cause I mean, I, we all know, like the thing with those Greek stories is that unconsciously those myths live in the DNA of humans because they're what every story is based on, you know, these, yeah. these badass Greek, uh, uh, playwrights just set us up. Right. So, when I started re-exploring that, one, what I was taken aback with is, wow, a couple thousand years later, we have not evolved. Great. Um, two, these stories are so dope and they have everything I love for in terms of like heightened language and like they, they actually are created to have music. And um, so that's actually what kicked it off. And then we, I did a production of Antigone in a, in a white box with 60 people um, uh, with like very sparse, they didn't have any shoes on. And then this like mixed media thrown against a wall. And that intimacy of that production really is what spawned me realizing that I wanted to do something more site specific, which led to immersive theater. And right, now right. what I'm trying to do, man, now what I'm trying to do is, you know, it's, it's been a gift because the community's really embraced us this time around and kind of been like, Hey, welcome kid. Um, you know, it takes 20 years in New York to be new. That's how that works. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, so running with that, what I'm, what my goal is now, God willing, if it, if it goes down, uh, is trying to continue to run with heightened text and create it in intimate environments, whether it's a fully immersive participatory experience or whether it's half, uh, where you are both participant and then at some point you become spectator. Uh, because sometimes this text just demands the respect of listening. Yeah. Um, which is actually something that happens in this piece. You go from complete and total participant for a long, long part of it. And then you are spectator slash participant where like, there's a point in it very much like a sleep no more where you can't talk anymore. Um, and that's also because if you invest, there's so much to hear, um, and you participate in terms of your actions, uh, and your actions directly affect the result of what you find out. And so I'm trying to figure out now with a couple projects is how to marry these classic texts and these experiences to try to see if there's a way to bridge that gap between the divide of um, traditional theater and uh, immersive theater. Because, you know, as of even now, like critics don't really know how to review this stuff. They're still like, you know, like critics were showing up not to call anyone out to this show and they'd be like, where am I sitting? And I'm like, oh, that's not really the same. There's not really any, I mean, there's places you can sit. My God, it's like set up in a bar, but, and in 10 different rooms that obviously have areas you, you can sit. And during the cocktail party, of course, we want you to like chill and drink your martini. 
and like chit chat with people. Right, but, right. But you know, I remember that really kind of like set off a bell in my mind, realizing that like we have so far to go in terms of people knowing how to just like throw away the paradigm of traditional theater and coming and experiencing things and also not being so wrapped up in linear storylines. Like, you know, my, my favorite director, Ivo Von Hovey, I uh, was listening to him the other day uh, on some times talk and he said it, he's like, I'm not so interested in clarity. You know, he's like, you go into a museum and you see a Rothko and you're like, what is that? It's like poetry. It's like brutality. And like, and, and like, I, I, I want to make up my own mind. And I think that that's what would be an interesting thing to do with these classic texts is to kind of put them in this place, scramble them up, make you see them from different points of view. And then actually, depending on maybe like how it is uh, set up, you actually see the story from a completely different perspective from someone else's point of view. Um, yeah. So that's, that's, that's my hope. If, if, I don't know if that's, if that is the exact answer you were looking for, but it's, it's now what we're fully embracing with Poseidon theater company and what I want to run with. And um, also kind of fascinated with almost wanting to work with from their just experiences that maybe are more um, what's the word I'm looking for. I guess, I guess like uh, mood driven uh, okay. depending on like what the context of them, uh, what the context is or what people need, uh, from it. Because I think the thing that you have to keep doing is you have to keep generating work. And sometimes you can generate a piece that maybe can only live for a little while. And I think when, if I was to do something that could only live for a couple weeks, I'd rather do a mood piece because I've actually become spoiled. Cause now like I've had an 11 week run and I really like it. Like yeah. we had 20, 22 performances of previews and we learned so much, which is like ridiculous, um, for, for most shows. So, you know, I'm very interested in, um, learning while the show's happening. Yeah. If that makes yeah. Sense. Which is essential and something that's really unique to, to immersive theater because immersive theater makes it possible for that to happen in traditional theater. It like, you create the thing and then the thing is performed and there's, I mean, always room for changes and there's always space, but at the same time, there are certain things that are not changeable. Whereas in immersive theater, there's always going to be surprises. There's always going to be unexpected reactions and there's suddenly a place for, for pivoting and shifting and reinventing and refining um, as you go through, which I think is just, is one of the dynamics that makes immersive theater just so, so incredibly unique and such an incredibly unique opportunity for, um, for theater as a medium. Exactly. And, you know, and let me be clear, I love theater, like, theater, like it's my background. Like I love it. And actually I was talking to, uh, my stage manager, Ellie Murata, who's a brilliant creator herself. Um, and we both like literally threw back our heads and laughed because I'm like, imagine what it's going to be like if we get hired for a proscenium show and we just like cracked up because we're like, please, um, because, you know, it, not not in the sense of like not out of respect, but like I, I would love to do a proscenium show because that that's my world. And like I'm equally detail oriented and like cross down to four and then counter cross on this line. Like I love that style. But I and I love that where that comes from. But there is something about shaking up the snow globe 
and creating things inside this medium where the audience um, can't be passive. And to be honest with you, like I think the one thing no one really wants to say and is afraid to say, the relationship between the audience and the production in terms of immersive theater really is an intense relationship because your energy about the them changes every night because I think what we're realizing now is that, and it's, it's a thing that like no proscenium's talked about. And like, uh, I know that at the Wolf of wall street, they have a whole thing in place of 30 people who are just dealing with safety yeah, is that yeah. we're realizing that audiences um, sometimes behave very badly. And like, that's something that you can't allow to happen to your actors and the team. Yeah, and certainly. it's something that I think we're learning to navigate our way through, especially right now in this like time, like we're, we're only continuing, we live in our thumbs and then you're confronted with a human being that close to you. And some people's reaction is to behave badly. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's one thing where I'm realizing I've loved this 60 person experience and it's been a gift to do it. But I, I would, I, I'm definitely looking towards a smaller audience for my next project uh, because I think that there's something about the niche of like 15, 20 people where those 15 and 20 people, you know, are there because they want to be there. Yeah. What's interesting with doing something like this, where I'm sure like other haunted experiences experience this, is you get the people who are like, I'm like game for this haunted experience. And then you get the people who were dragged there. And right, the people right. who were dragged there, which is all theater, right? I'm sure if you go see, you know, if you, someone goes and sees like a spectacle on Broadway, like a musical, which I love too. I love the fantasy of it. I love it. Um, you get the friend who's like, I love this. People are singing and dancing and there's, everything's cool. And then you got the person who's like, this is the worst. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like how people talk shit about Phantom of the Opera, but it's like something that, is something doesn't run for 30 years because it sucks. Phantom of the Opera is fucking brilliant. Let me say yeah. that for the record. Like Hal Prince is a, isn't, it was a, was a God of theater. And the reason that though that he made that work is because the way he told the story is so urgent and it is a ghost story. And he like straight up sets you up for that. And it's a ghost story with the human being involved. Uh, but ultimately it's like a psychological thing when you submit to it. Right. And that's why people have walk away and are like, you know what? That was actually really cool. Um, so I think that that's what's been interesting is to find people who want to submit. But I think that's all theater in general. It isn't just our genre, but we have that really special thing of having them so close to you that if someone does behave badly, it's different than them heckling or being rude in row JJ, like off to the right. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Yeah, um, most definitely. That's a tricky thing yes. to contend with. It's a tricky thing to contend with. And I'm sure I'm not the only person who's like dealt with it, which isn't to say that's been the majority, but it's definitely something I find very challenging. And it's a very tenuous, uh, uh, nightly relationship. <laughs> yeah. Without a doubt. You always have someone who wants to break the experience or be uncooperative to the thing for one reason or the other, but there's always, right. there's always a troll. Um, right. And, and I think the whole thing with this that I'm so obsessed with, with this genre is that it's the fact that we get to it's make believe. And that's, what's so cool. Like we're totally playing make believe, like we're using our imaginations and we're asking an audience to fully, fully play make believe. I went to two experiences yesterday uh, that I, I, I won't name just because I don't want to like review them online, but they were wonderful. so different and so extreme. And I just had to submit to these two immersive experiences in their extremities. 
because even the the creator and then just the human in me wanted to resist and I can see why people want to resist. And I just submitted and I got washed up into both of them and it was very satisfying. Yeah. Yeah. Most certainly. Um, so as we are coming up on time in a little while here, um, I just have a couple more questions and then we can transition into hearing where people can find you and your work and everything that is happening with Poseidon and on the horizon. But for the moment, um, I want to potentially dig into the idea of nonlinear storylines a little bit, um, because I think that that is a, a very interesting thing. And it's a very hard thing to work with coming from a traditional narrative dialectic because, you know, you, you want the story to be a nice package, but at the same time, it's a story, even if it is an explicitly linear thing is not really ever interpreted in a completely linear way. No one sits down and, or it's rare that one can find the time to sit down and read an entire epic narrative front to back even just in the various sections, the various mindsets that you enter into in reading a book or going to a show, you are always going to experience something in a nonlinear way and all the much, all more so within immersive experiences. Um, so like how was it, was it difficult to kind of depart from having a super like super tight, super cohesive narrative that you're trying to convey or did it just kind of come naturally? Well, I mean, um, in this instance, it, it, one of the things I love about the challenge of site-specific theater is when I walked into the space for my first tour, actually just as a human, I just was like, oh, hey, this looks really cool. Do you mind if I like took a look? Like, Do you want a tour? Yeah, great. And I walked into the space and my brain exploded and I saw the show. And I was, you know, luckily everyone um, said, yes, they're very, they're amazing. The people at RPM Underground are are the best. Yeah, but yeah. Um, I walked into a space that I was like, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, nine different rooms. Okay. And I instantly was like, well, poof, let's throw out that linear thought line. Like, because I knew that we, we got to use the rooms and things are going to happen in rooms. And whenever I have doors, I open and close doors because there's nothing worse than like not using doors, right? Like when you go to something and you're like, please use the door. Right, um, right. So I instantly, I went into it um, knowing that that was going to be the case. And he, he, my writer, uh, the brilliant Nate Raven, um, he even really, he initially was very like, uh, I, I don't like, oh, cause he's, he's such a good writer and he's so good at narrative that he's like, you know, Salazar, what do, what do we, how do we, you know, He's like, so I don't want it to be blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, I just assured him and we had a talk. I'm like, you start off with, there is a narrative that's very clear in the beginning, right? But then when it breaks after the seance, I said, you know how I work, you know how I stage things and you know how the music is. I'm like, write, now write nine episodes. And then we're going to create cohesive threads when those episodes move around and then it will all end together. So once we thought of it that way, basically what it was is it was like rehearsing episodics yeah. and we rehearsed it very much. Actually, you know, it's funny people come and watch it. And a lot of people have said like, peers, how did you rehearse this? And I'm like, I, I guess it was a little complicated. I mean, I did have a bullhorn, um, <laughs> but I, I did. I was like, okay, everyone go like, cause you know, you can't, it's just, it was crazy. Um, 
because when it all go once, we're like slam, slam, and timing, and Allie was like timing things and like go back. Um, but I just we just embraced the fact that we knew that that was what was up, and so then we would rehearse these episodes, go from room to room to room to room, and the one thing that had to be super cohesive was everyone's uh, journey is, is in, in the exact same world. Everyone is on the same plane of energy. The mythology behind the kids in the Poe Society is all completely unified. And what's happening to them as a collective group under this circus tent is the same. So whether or not you were watching something in a linear fashion really wasn't the point because the world was secure. Does that make sense? Yeah. So like the world that they're in is cohesive. And this paranormal swamp that they're walking through is all the same. So this field that these kids are stuck in of, of paranormal activity, they're all in the same location and they're all having the journey separate yet together. Then they all come together at the end and the finale is a group experience. Um, so there, so basically the nonlinear aspect is sandwiched between a beginning, a nonlinear middle and end. And I'm finding in terms of format that that's actually kind of the way to go about it because then at least there's a little period and a button and a bow kind of at the end yeah. where, you know, there are people who are going to be wildly unsatisfied. It's like sometimes you go to sleep no more and I've had friends who've gone and I'm like, isn't it the best? And they're like, well, I, I kind of played in the candy shop for like maybe 40 minutes. And I'm like, what the fuck, dude, um, <laughs> you know what I mean? And I've had people do that. Yeah. They're like, well, I read a lot of letters and I opened up and I found like a bloody thing and, and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, did you follow anyone? And no, no. I'm like, okay, fine. So what do you, what do you want from me? Um, <laughs> you know, like, what do you, what do you want them to do for you? What, what can, what more can these human beings do for you? Like there's clues everywhere. Um, so, uh, in that sense, what, how the audience's satisfaction level is, is dependent on their participation. But it was a, it was an interesting thing because I had to throw away a lot of my red flags in terms of, even sight lines, like because of the space, I was like, well, if you're going to see him do this, you, you got to scoot in and it is what it is. And also leaning into the genre of sixties horror movies, they're completely fragmented. They make no sense. It's like madness. And there's like no answers. And then the answer is very vague and like the imagery is really intense and it's about reactions. And so that really helped in terms of embracing that and throwing it to the side. But what I'm realizing now for the next thing is if I do this next thing, I think I'm going to do, I think what needs to happen for something that isn't paranormal is if you're going to break people up and there is a narrative, but depending where you are, it's nonlinear. You need to allow time where the audience has a moment of like meditative pause Right, right. While action is still moving forward, so they can sort of think. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, most like definitely. It, this piece, once it gets going, it is relentless. But that also was because because of I wanted that relentlessness because it ultimately is a homage to a horror movie. Albeit, no one touches you. You know, uh, there's no parlor tricks. Um, right, right. But, you know, horror is relentless. That's what makes it kind of horrifying because you don't really get a chance to breathe. Um, I just did Blackout, actually. You know, you've heard of it, right? Yeah, Blackout. most definitely. And um, relentless, 25 minutes. And I was just like, you know, and I, you know, I'm a, you know, I'm a creator, but I submitted to the experience 
And I was viscerally making like audible reactions of fear that I, in my, my sane brain was like, you are whimpering like what? And, but that was the whole point of the relentlessness of it. But even in that experience, he had, there were these little moments of pause and the pause was horrifying. Cause like, what's next? Right, what's next? Right. And, um, but ultimately though, it was completely relentless. And that is part of the intensity of when you're doing a horror, or anything, whether it's aggressive, like a blackout, which was really, I loved it. Uh, or something like this, that's, uh, more of a paranormal, um, a paranormal state that people are in, there has to be a relentlessness there uh, because we also too have moments where things shift and you get a chance to like change your map. And there is a, a stillness to the transitions, even inside of the relentlessness, but you can't pause per se. Yeah. I, I'm realizing otherwise, you know, it's a very weird thing holding that horror. It's such a, a delicate little balloon in the air that if it falls to the floor and you don't believe it's kind of a wrap. Yeah. Yeah. But in terms of moving forward with nonlinear things that would be more story based that aren't horror. <laughs> um, it, I, I think there has to be time to allow the audience to meditate. Yeah. For just process for two seconds to be like, all right, got especially that like, ready for yeah, more, but hold on. Like, let me, let me yeah. think. Especially with text, right? Because it's so much information. The bandwidth of our brains really we're 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 losing it with like all these characters we're we're limited to. So I think the audience needs to sort of reflect and then continue moving. Um but yeah. so more or less what I guess I guess circling back around, I I do really like it. I like the freedom of it. I like I like the challenge of, of throwing away some of the things that you're so used to in your training as a theater person. But at the same time, straight up though, at the end of the day though, every episode is still very much rehearsed in a classic sense. There's urgency, there's truth, and there's like stakes. So it's still very much rehearsing a scene like any scene in a theater piece. And I think that's where ultimately this is all theater. It's still a scene individually. If you were to pull everything away and watch that in a class, a teacher would be like, here's a scene from the cooping theory. Gina (laughs) recently was possessed by Poe. She's currently in a state of, you know, like if you really took it out of context, you could just do it like a scene in a, in a class, you know, and, and it's just a scene, but then you throw it into this mix and all of a sudden it's this nonlinear, you know, ride but ultimately they're just little scenes. I mean, it's still, and, and that's the thing too, is every space is its own theater. And that's key. I think as a creator is you have to look at every individual pocket that you're using of a space. Now we're in this theater. Now we're in this theater. Now we're in this little theater. So in this little theater, even though we're always acting in the round, right? What is upstage? What is downstage? What is our theory of where we want the audience to look? You know, you're still staging it so that you're suggesting free will. And I think that's the funniest part about this genre is that, yeah, people have free will, but it's sort of the suggestion of free will because we are constantly cluing people uh, how to navigate. Right, right. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah, tricky managing that attention, but that is that is the the 
a big part of the mystical allure of the whole thing because you're not necessarily aware of it once you're in the experience and you you know giving yourself to the experience um right Ye yesterday i was in this thing that was kind of like an installation piece that was also had devised immersive aspects to it and there was this cool little room that looked like i could like you know push through it and go in and i looked at the character and she kind of looked at me like smiling like yeah then i looked at her again walking towards it and she just gave me the slightest like no 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 like sincere no and i was like oh okay i won't go in there you know and it's it's funny how how um nuanced it is sometimes right yeah yeah most definitely so i think on that note um where where can people find you um I hate ums. Uh, uh, so Poseidon Theater Company is the website. It's uh, Poseidon, like the water god, not the boat. Uh, theater with theater with an RE company, just one word, dot com. The show, which I'm not sure if it'll be open still um, by the time this comes out, but the show is uh, The Cooping Theory, and our website for that is knock three times, and it's knock3x, like xylophone, s, dot com. And then my website is director Salazar, like Slytherin, uh, dot com, which it turns out I am a Slytherin, which I was like, that's a little on the nose, God, <laughs> but you know, what are you going to do? Take it and run, take it and run. Yeah, well, wonderful. Exactly. Um, and then, uh, should I direct people to uh, social media as well for the show for Poseidon oh, in yeah. general? Of course. Yeah. So, um, the, um, Instagram for the show is at, uh, knock underscore three XS, uh, Poseidon theater is, um, if you actually punch Poseidon theater company in, it'll pop up on, on, on Instagram and, uh, uh, Facebook on Instagram. It shows up with some underscores in between the names. And then I'm at director Salazar on Facebook, Instagram, and, uh, Twitter, which I'm still trying to figure out Twitter. I got to navigate my way through it. I'm still trying to figure that out. And, uh, the same thing goes for Twitter. It's the knock three times. And then a Poseidon Theater Company on Twitter, which uh, hopefully will be a little more active uh, moving forward. Right on. Well, wonderful. Um, Aaron, thank you so much for taking the time to chat about this wonderful and incredible spooky season experience that you and your team has put so much time and effort into creating and weaving and bringing into the land of immersive Thanks so much, man. And this is like, I'm so uh, glad that you have this going. It's it's cool that you're letting uh, uh, people like us uh, get on here and rant. It's fun. <laughs> <laughs> that it most definitely is. That it most definitely is. And of course, for all those listening, um, everything that we mentioned will be in the show notes at immersionnation.com slash podcast. And until next time, thank you for listening. Calling all immersive adventurers, explorers, connoisseurs, and artists. The immersive revolution is just beginning. All that is to say, we would love any feedback that you might have on the show. What do you want to hear more of, less of? Anyone in particular you'd like us to have on the show? I would love to hear your thoughts. So please rate us, review us, or just drop us a line on the website at immersionnation.com. I always love having conversations about this wide and wild world that we are both living in and creating. Once again, this is the Emergent Nation podcast. 
Thank you for joining us in this adventure. 